This morning we were in Luke chapter 4, and we're just going to tackle the first third or so of chapter Luke. We kinda, we're kind of getting into a place where Luke is going to kind of rapid fire, if you will, in his, uh, in his gospel, uh, give us different accounts, different parables, different stories about Jesus. And before he does that, he, uh, as you know, has taken us through what we call chapter 3, but it's is the paving of the way for Jesus and his ministry through John. It gives the lineage of Jesus as far as, uh, instead of Matthew working his way from Abraham, Luke works his way backwards from Jesus through Mary's lineage. And at the end of chapter 3, just before that lineage, he gives us Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Whereas Matthew and Mark make a little bit more, I think, of a point, not Mark, Matthew, um, makes a little bit more of a point of Jesus' baptism. Luke gives us kind of a quick summary, but it's important to hold uh, in our memory and in our heart. And so Luke chapter three twenty one says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And if we keep in mind Luke's ethos as he, as this gospel develops before us, we know that he's intent on giving specific details for us to be able to corroborate his story with others and with other historians. We also know that he wants to draw out the humanity, the the title, if you will, and the embodiment of Jesus as the Son of Man, not just the Son of God, but the Son of God and the Son of Man. And part of that purpose, as we understand it, is to better, is for us to better identify with Jesus, to realize that he really, truly lived a human life on earth in order to be able to be our atonement, in order to be our sacrifice in our place for redemption. And so we see the baptism as the fulfillment. In Matthew, I think it says um, that's the fulfillment of all righteousness, what Jesus describes as him being baptized. And we see symbolically his baptism being the, the death, uh, the burial, and the resurrection, uh, the, the going from an old man to a new man. And so Jesus did that for us in order for us to identify with him as the sinners he came to save. We also know that that end, that end part of Luke chapter 3, that baptism really marks, marks kind of the start of Jesus' ministry at age roughly 30, which is interesting because the Levites in their service to God in the temple would also begin their ministry and their service at age 30. We know Jesus to be the great high priest, don't we? So there's a lot of parallels that Luke kind of weaves into his story. Now in chapter 4, with that backdrop, it reads, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. 
for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, and he said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 13, And when, they, when, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So here we have a pretty well-known, pretty well-covered section of Scripture on the temptations of Jesus. I don't know that what we'll cover today is anything brilliantly new, and if it was, it would probably actually be a warning sign to you. Uh, but Lord willing, the Holy Spirit will work through this and, and teach us and highlight things that we need to apply to our lives. What's interesting about if we take a half step back and, and keep chapter 3 in mind is, again, Luke kind of just gives us a very brief summary of Jesus' baptism. And it's interesting because Luke is so detailed in other ways. I think part of that is because some of the Gospels, maybe two of the other Gospels have already been written, and because that's not, at least in this part, what he is emphasizing. Uh, but kind of hiding within that description of Jesus' baptism is the fact that Jesus was praying when the uh, heavens opened, the Holy Spirit descended upon him, and God spoke from heaven saying, this is my son, and you I'm well pleased. And we see in Luke, probably more than the other Gospels, uh, we see Luke making mention of Jesus praying more often. And again, I think that goes to us understanding his humanity and understanding uh, the way in which Jesus went about living his life to fulfill his purpose, which was ultimately for us. But he set the tone and the model for us to follow as well. So if Jesus needed to pray so often, how much more should we? And that's something we've covered pretty recently here, but it's worth mentioning again. Also in that Luke chapter 3, we see that the picture, and again, Luke probably does a little bit more of this than, than the other uh, Gospels, but we see the picture of the Trinity, and while we don't have the word, the term Trinity in the Bible, it came about 100, 150 years later when uh, theologians and pastors started using it, but uh, we, we see very distinctly Jesus here on earth, the voice of God coming from heaven as the Father, and the Holy Spirit in, in Luke's terms bodily descending upon Jesus. And so we have the three in one, the Godhead, if you will, Father, Son, and Spirit. So it's from that setting, from that understanding, what many of us, if we had such a radical experience when we were baptized, many of us did. Uh, we might call it a spiritual high, wouldn't we? This, this, this time where everything seemed to come together, everything seemed to come into place, where God is speaking over our lives saying, oh, man, man, if you only knew how, how pleased I am because of you. And that is such a great affirmation as a believer, and we hear that and we receive that, and it gets us pumped up, doesn't it? And from that place, Jesus goes into the wilderness. He's led from that high from that place, if you will, of, of where everything's coming together and, and the spirit leads him into the wilderness. 
We just talked about the wilderness in terms of the symbolic nature of it. The fact that even while it, it is undeveloped in a place of wandering, in a place of uh, solitude, that Jesus or that God provides for us in that, don't, doesn't he? I think for us it's not too different where often we come to that place where we feel like we've achieved something in our Christian walk, and that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. We get caught, it's not a trap, but we get caught in, in, in thinking that that is the pinnacle of our Christianity, of our walk, and the, the wilderness surprises us somehow. And I don't think that it should really come as a surprise, should it? Because really the wilderness is a testing ground, it's a proving ground, it's taking what God has developed and imparted to us in the previous season, if you will, and refining it further, and because it's refined, it becomes uh, it becomes more grounded in our life. It becomes uh, sure in our life. If you think, um, you know, if you think about, uh, I don't know why I'm on this trip, but but with primitive skills, primitive, primitive, you know, there's this whole movement to become primitive again, uh, which I find interesting, but it's also kind of weird. So if if you make a spear out of just wood, I'm going to lose people here. If you make a spear just out of, of wood, you know, wood's not that strong compared to metal, right? But you can harden that spear tip of wood by putting it gently in over a fire, not burning it, but hardening it over the flame gradually, trying it in the fire, if you will. So the fire and the refinement process, in a way, is not just one to purify, which I think we understand pretty well, but is also one to firm up and to shore up the things that are to remain and make them stronger and make them harder, uh, more fast in our lives. Does that make sense? And so the wilderness is that place. And so just as Jesus is baptized and sees God, and people are witnessing it. God give his affirmation over Jesus. He goes from there and led by the Spirit into the wilderness. For 40 days, he doesn't eat. He's hungry. And in that time is where the enemy brings temptation. I think it's interesting that he fasted. Fasting wasn't uncommon. It would have been a, a ritual, a, a regular practice for uh, the Jews. But he fasted, he was hungry, and then Satan tempts him. So, you know, I skip lunch, and I'm pretty hangry. I knew one person would get that, and it would be my wife. If you don't know, hangry is a evolving term. It's a combination of hungry and angry. And some of us, and I'm not looking up because it's more than just me, but if you skip a meal, uh, we know to steer clear of you. But for 40 days, he fasted and he was hungry. And, it, you know, again, that's another little thing that we can easily read past. But the fact that Jesus hungered, he could have easily said, God, take this hunger from me. He could have even in his own power just said, I will not be hungry. And so what we have here is kind of an example of, and I think it will unfold more as we go through Luke. But in Luke, we kind of see this dichotomy 
where Jesus acts, or rather feels in his human nature as the, the, son, of the, the son of man, uh, but then he acts also, and he carries the mantle uh, in his deity as the son of God. And so as the son of man and as a human with feeling, with human needs, he, he hungers. And I think that might be one of the greater understatements of, of the Bible because for f- after 40 days, y- you know, I hungry would not describe me. A raving lunatic might. So here Jesus is. He's, he's fasted. He's meditated. He, he physically is deprived but spiritually likely still strong. And the enemy comes and tempts him. The first temptation is this. I'll read the intro again. He ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he was hungry. Verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And in a way, in this temptation, the devil was tempting Jesus and questioning or, or trying to call into question the love of God as the Father. We say, how? Well, we think about the other teachings of the Bible that we have about fathers and the Father's love. And we think of Matthew 7 and we think of Luke 11. We don't have to turn there, but it's the, the classic for everyone who asks receives and, and the one who seeks finds the one who knocks the doors open. Or which one of you, if the son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? And so we see kind of the opposite of that turned on its head. We think back and we recall the experience of the children of Israel in the wilderness and their complaint against God that there was no food, that they ate better in captivity and in bondage. As soon as they got out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea and entered into the wilderness, they began to doubt God's plan for them and question his love for them in doing so. I think one of the greatest traps in our lives is the voice of the enemy that would come and call into question and cause us to doubt the love of God for us. Because when we doubt his love, we, we also doubt his provision, we doubt his plans, and we doubt his protection. If there's one thing for us to shore up in our faith and in our understanding of the word of God and our understanding of our Christian walk is just how deep, how broad, how personal, how great is the Father's love for us. And I think if we find ourselves struggling or we find ourselves being tempted, that's the first thing we need to come to is to understand again or to remind ourselves and ground ourselves in that love. See, in this scenario, the the enemy is... The, the devil is tempting, attacking Jesus at his physically weakest point until up to this point. I don't think it's any different for us that the enemy would come and, and attack us when we're physically weak. I couldn't figure out what was going on last night, yesterday, when I, you know, I've been sick a lot off, on and off the last few months. And again, this weekend, I just, you know, I had a cough on Friday night. I think, oh, here we go again. I woke up Saturday feeling okay, and then by midday yesterday, it, it hit me hard, and I was weak and disoriented and still am, but it didn't hit me until this morning. I go, oh, yeah, <laughs> I'm preaching on weakness and t- 
temptation and all those good things. I don't think it's much different. I don't think it should come as a surprise when the enemy comes when we're weak physically. But here's the thing is that just because we are, are going through a tough time physically does not mean that we need to be or have to be or even are spiritually weak. We can be strong even in our physical weakness. And I think we see that modeled for us here with Jesus. That though he would have been, and again, you know, it just tells us that he, was, that he hungered, but I think it's a pretty safe assumption that if he fasted for 40 days, he was physically weak. Can we agree on that? And yet we see Jesus at, at his I don't know if I can say that, at his finest here spiritually in his response to the enemy. We also in this and throughout the next two temptations, we see the importance of knowing the word of God. We'll come back to that, but it is so important. Jesus in his response to the enemy to change that stone into bread. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, and, and here's the full verse of that. And he humbled you, and he let your hunger, and let you hunger, excuse me, he humbled you and let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. So there was a purpose in causing the people of Israel to hunger in the wilderness, even as God fed them. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. There's a beauty in that statement, isn't there? But man lives. We have our very life by every word that comes from the mouth the Lord. Remember, we have our very breath because God chose to speak. He spoke light into existence. He spoke creation into its form. He spoke us, created us in his image and his likeness. Being the chief of creation, he chose to create us in his image and likeness. And therefore, how much more does he love us? The second thing, the second temptation we see here is, is one of hope, if you will. Uh, understanding the future, understanding God's plan. Verse 5, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, to, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and, give, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, I will, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This one's interesting to me because in a way it, it's the devil promising Jesus something that's already been given to him, isn't it? But I think where the, the rub is is that the enemy is promising 
this to him on the early side of the cross. See, the enemy would seek to derail the story of redemption for our lives, just as he sought to derail redemption for mankind by tempting Jesus. See, Jesus was already going to inherit the kingdoms of the earth, but after the cross. And so for, but the small price of Jesus to bow down and to worship Satan once, he could have it before enduring the suffering, the rejection, the hardship, the trial of his ministry in the cross. See, had Jesus accepted and taken possession of the kingdoms, he would have certainly found an earthly triumph, if you will. But it could not have fulfilled the, the spiritual conquest of sin and death and the grave. In a way, Satan was offering the easy way out. He was offering the, the reward before the trial. And that's not unlike what we face every day. But for Jesus, it meant that he would have accepted what was expedient but forfeited the redemption story as a whole. What's interesting here, too, is that Satan doesn't mention much beyond worship, but what Jesus brings it back to in quoting Deuteronomy again is that what we worship is what we serve. Jesus' response was, is found in Deuteronomy 6.13. It is the Lord your God who you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. See, Satan wasn't really interested in just a momentary act of worship. He knew that by Jesus bowing down to him, he would place himself, Jesus would place himself in, in, uh, in a submissive place before him. And often in temptation, we are, we are prone or we are led to believe that the easy way out is to, to just surrender to our flesh, to surrender to our, to our physical, our earthly desires, that immediate gratification, that expedient way. And what we do is we forfeit what's eternal. We forfeit what's being built in us for uh, the future. We trade the eternal for the temporary. See, the devil didn't mention serving or service, but we know that what we worship is what we serve and what we place the highest on the highest pedestal in our life or what we spend the most time doing or thinking about. Maybe it's what we worry about the most or, or obsess about in our mind the most. That's what owns us. So if we place ourselves and in, 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 in we worship the God of the Bible, the God of creation, the God who sent his son to save us, we find true freedom. If we choose to worship things or worship the enemy, we place ourselves in service to him, and really it's placing ourselves in bondage in the worst way possible. 
so that temptation is to question the plan and the, and the process of God, to, to put a fear and a doubt into our godly hope of what God will lead us through and, and, and lead us to achieve. But if we remember what the example that Jesus gave to us is, he left heaven to be born as a pauper in a manger. He spent 30 years in, in obscurity and ignominy. He ministered for just a handful of years only to be rejected and to be uh, chased after and nearly stoned and put to death multiple times. And finally, he was led to the cross. What, as his followers, should we expect? Why should we expect any different? That was the process. That was the path that Jesus had to take for us. We need to guard ourselves against trading the temporary for the eternal. Because our hope is in him. Because he endured. Because he suffered because he chose the eternal over the temporary so can we enabled by the spirit because he won at the cross because he triumphed for us we can triumph too the third temptation is this he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I think here, in a way, Satan is questioning the faithfulness of God. What's interesting, too, is that he's using Scripture to do it. He's twisting Scripture to tempt Jesus. See, in a way, when, when our sin nature wants to put God to the test, we, we are not acting out of faith, but out of doubt and fear. It's a dangerous thing to twist scripture, it's a, but it, it happens all too often, even even with good intentions sometimes, uh, and the bad. I think this section of scripture, as we see it, and, and Jesus, we see Jesus respond to the temptation, it's also a, a warning against what we call proof texting. Proof texting is when we, we, we take scripture and we find a verse that supports our arguments, we, we have our conclusion first. And then we pull verses out of the Bible to support that conclusion and support that theory without regard to their original context or even their original intended meaning. So that's why here we, we, we take time to really try to understand the context, to try to understand the author's original intent in saying things because even the original intent can mean something entirely differently when we look at it 2,000 years later. Contemporary Christianity is full of books and teachers and theories and theologies and doctrines of people who do this, who, who proof text their way through the Bible. And what we 
what happens is it, 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 it eventually builds such a, a a loose and foundation that's so pockmarked with holes that it sends us into crisis when when things all of a sudden stop making sense. So whether here or you go somewhere else or even in your own study, you need to be careful. It's highlighted here as one of the three main temptations that Jesus faced. And yet it's something that we hear and we hear somebody say and we just kind of write off and go, you know, we have that check in our spirit where we hear somebody tell us something and go, yeah, I don't know if that's exactly what was meant. And then you look it up and you go, I you know, I, well, you know, they've got the title of pastor and so, you know, I, I'm going to go with it. No. Even it's me, no. Seek it out for yourself. Study it out yourself. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you in it. Seek counsel on it if it's that important, but don't just write it off. The enemy knows Scripture. The enemy quotes Scripture. And when we're in that place of weakness, physical weakness, when we've already been assaulted spiritually by the enemy and tempted and tried and Man, it might sound really good. Wow, that that scripture, I don't know about it, but I want to believe it. That scripture, I, you know, it, it sounds like it's out of context, but here it's been given to me. It must be right because it's scripture. What did Jesus do? He went and he looked at other scripture. And in the other scripture he found or he knew that what was being said to him was false. So he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 16, if you shall, excuse me, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You tested him at Massah. See, what happened there was Israel ended up rebelling against God. When we put God to the test, we are questioning him. We are pushing the boundaries. Our flesh wants to test the boundaries, much like, you know, that teenage, sorry, teenagers, but like the, like the stereotypical teenage angst and rebellion that always is pushing the parents to the very limits and the very boundaries of, of their authority. And <laughs> our flesh does the same thing against God no matter how old we are or how mature we are. And we have to guard ourselves against that. We have to rest in the knowledge of the word of God, letting the spirit enlighten us through it. We realize that as believers, Christ has given us that perfect peace to rule in our hearts, and that's where we have to go. That's the place we have to rest in. Rather than saying, seeing how far I can take this, or let's really try and test God, we need to rest in the assurance of his word and rest in the assurance of the fact that he has already been there and done it over and over and over again. He's already proven himself in Scripture to love us, to provide for us, to protect us, to shelter us, to rescue us. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you test him at Massah. What's interesting here is, is scholars think one way that this unfolded in terms of the temptation of Jesus was that it wasn't necessarily a, a physical um, 
transportation, but the, the temptation uh, was in Jesus' mind. Whether he holds the one or the other, I don't think it really changes at all the, the, the takeaways from this section of Scripture where I think it might enlighten us a little bit more if we are willing to accept that, is that it highlights the, the battle of the mind. That's something that's easily relatable to most of us, isn't it? So it wasn't just a physical temptation in which Jesus and, and the enemy were transported to the pinnacle of the temple or transported to a mountain top to be able to figuratively see or, or, or actually see all the kingdoms of the earth. That would have been a possible in terms of human eyes and so if we accept that it was a a, a, a temptation that was held a, a an exchange that was held in the mind we, we we can also relate to that can't we and the battle of the mind and the necessity one way or another to know scripture and to be able to quote it and to be able to use it against the temptation of the enemy. See, the enemy, it, it's often not a, a full frontal assault, is it? Temptation weaves its way into our lives through things that are familiar to us or even things that we embrace, such as Scripture. It comes when we are weak. It comes when we are divided, when, when we don't allow ourselves to receive and embrace the peace that God gives us. And it's at that point that we have to fall back to God the Father and his word for our lives. See, I think the third temptation really was a, a temptation of faith in the sense that Jesus had to discern what the word of God really was and to put his faith in the entirety of scripture at that time, the entirety uh, of the word of God as a person. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And so, Jesus in his faith in God the Father, that he would look over him, but that he did not need to test him. He had faith that, that God the Father, when the time came, that he would need rescuing if he did. That was already proven. So to wrap things up again, I think we see in Luke truly the humanity and the compassion of Jesus. By enduring this, these temptations, he really sets the model for us, and he enables himself to be identified with us, giving us an example to follow. Luke shows Jesus as the Son of God, the Son of Man as well, the humanity, his needs, his sensation of hunger. And yeah, especially in this instance, the, the ability for him to overcome spiritually. I think we make too many excuses for ourselves. Sorry, God, I was weak. Sorry, God, I had a headache. Sorry, God, I was tired. Sorry, God, it just sounded good. But if we desire to live out an authentic Christianity, we, we must be able to discern the word of God. We must be able to embrace the word of God in our lives 
and especially in times of temptation. Secondly, that we need to hold to that, the importance, the, the absolute need for the word of God in our lives. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good to success. I think it's interesting that Jesus quoted every time in this series that we see, he quoted Deuteronomy. It said that the, the Jewish uh, rabbis held to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law, first five books of our Old Testament and the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that they held that higher than the rest of the canon. And here Jesus is quoting exclusively out of Deuteronomy. If you weren't listening, I just proof texted three scriptures, except that if you go and look at their context, they will hold up to what we're talking about. But we need to be on guard. Not that we live life suspicious of everybody, including your pastors. Uh, but that we're sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And we're discerning in, in, in who we allow a voice in our life. So that voice can easily be the voice of temptation if we're not careful. In this exchange with Jesus and the enemy, we need to have it echo in our head. It is written. It is written. It has been said. It is written. If it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. We need to commit God's word to our hearts, to our minds, even to our soul and life. That way we can be wary. We can, we can be on guard when we see it being taken out of context or twisted. It's also so we can respond with something solid, with something tried and tested by giving the word of God in those times of temptation. Lastly, I think we need, when we face temptation, we need to understand the paradigm. We need to gain that spiritual, that God-given perspective. What do I mean by that? We need to realize that when we're being tempted and tried, the enemy would have us sacrifice the spiritual for the physical or the temporary. To doubt God's love and his ability to provide for us. The antidote to that is to understand God's love and his intention for us. We need to understand that the enemy would have us sacrifice the, the eternal for the temporary. So the first one, sorry, was spiritual for the physical. The next one is eternal for the temporary. We need to understand that then we would have a sacrifice eternal for the temporary to cause us to question the hope we have in Christ. The firm understanding, the assurance that we have for the future and for the plans that God has for us. We need to be eternally minded rather than 
looking for immediate gratification. Thirdly, the enemy would have us put glory ahead of suffering to hinder our faith, to degrade our understanding of God's faithfulness for us. See, if we put the reward before the trial, the trial means nothing. Nothing is solved. Nothing is hardened. Nothing is refined. If you are constantly rewarding your child, which in this day and age in America is pretty much all we do, we, we, we see the byproduct of that with, with children, with adults even, who don't know boundaries, who don't understand process, who can't uh, make decisions for themselves or, or right choices in the times of suffering because every time as a child they went through a trial, their parents solved it for them and didn't let them experience it. As believers, we understand that those trials, those they, they, they are essential to our faith because they refine us. They harden the principles of God that need to be firmed up in our lives. And they prove us before the world. We must learn to maintain a heavenly perspective. One that is grounded in scripture and enlightened to us by the Holy Spirit, brought to life to us day by day by the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Let's end with this, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, it's talking about the new man, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For, you've, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So we set our eyes, we set our mind to things above where Christ is. Christ having been there where we are before, having been there in our temptations before, having been there in our weakness before, and having pushed on, having kept the faith, if you will, having triumphed over it. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your example. Help us to apply it to our lives. Even when we are weak, we know you, you are strong. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you continue to refine us. Help us to hold the word in our hearts. Help us to make good use of it and to discern the right use of it. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would breathe into every one of us this morning. Help us to get beyond our physical ailments. Help us to get beyond even our our, our mind and, and, the, and the mental battle that rages sometimes and to look to you to see our current struggle with spiritual eyes and perspective, to know that you're in control, to know that you've already brought the victory for us. So Lord, I pray for this body and, and wherever we are at as individuals, God, I pray that you would strengthen us, you would give us encouragement this morning, even now, to fight that good fight, to resist the enemy and see him flee. Father, we know that you're watching over us. We know that you're providing for us. And so, Holy Spirit, I, pr I, I ask you to have your way in each of our lives.
lives. That when we emerge from that wilderness experience, when we emerge from that series of temptation and trials, that we would be victorious. Let's stand and close in worship.